This is We Are Many, and I'm Brian Farrell. Today's show is devoted to a conversation between two extremely dedicated activists on the subject of racial justice. One is a civil rights movement veteran. The other has been deeply involved with the ongoing struggle in Ferguson. I won't spend any more time introducing them because my Waging Nonviolence colleague, Nathan Schneider, did an excellent job of it two weeks ago when this event was held in New York. Suffice it to say, the issues they discussed, namely the need for militant, not passive, nonviolent civil disobedience, becomes more relevant and urgent with each passing day. Here's Nathan. Thank you all so much for being here. This is a great crowd and a great and holy place. Uh, my name's Nathan Schneider, and I'm a, an editor at Waging Nonviolence. Woo! All right. Yeah. Also a friend of the Catholic worker, the really bad kind of friend who shows up when there's an excuse to be on stage and then gets out as soon as anybody needs to be fed or clothed or anything like that. But um, hopefully they'll forgive me. Um, I want to welcome you here on behalf of Waging on Violence and also the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Uh, who's here uh, co-sponsoring the event tonight, helped us get uh, Reverend Seku here. So um, wonderful organization. We've got a lot of legacies uh, in this room. And, uh, and so this is going to be a really rich conversation. Also, again, thank you to the Catholic Worker for welcoming us here, uh, making this event possible with the historic space. Uh, you'll find uh, after the event, if you're interested, there are uh, copies of the Catholic Worker <laughs> magazine or uh, newspaper, uh, which is uh, normally one cent. I was told that tonight that it will be free. So All right. Pick up a copy. So very, very um, yeah, unique opportunity um, to avail of your, yourself of that. Um, also, there's information on the table there about um, the uh, upcoming action uh, that Witness uh, Against Torture is holding. Do we have a copy of that here? Um, that's, that's on January 11th, uh, the next in the ongoing struggle to, uh, to close Guantanamo Bay Prison. And also on that table is uh, one of the big reasons that we're all here tonight, which is David Hartso's new book, uh, Waging Peace, Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist. Uh, and there are some of those available for a donation of $20. Um, uh, and, and this is really the excuse that we have tonight to have this important conversation. So David is um, here on my right. He's somebody who, uh, who comes to us uh, with, again, a long legacy of work, of struggle uh, that he's going to be sharing with us tonight. Uh, he's the author, most recently, of this memoir, um, of, his, of his work from the civil rights movement through many, many movements to, to, till today. He's also executive director of Peace Workers in the Bay Area in San Francisco, co-founder of Nonviolent Peace Force, which does work around the world 
um, uh, bringing nonviolent strategies and tactics to uh, some of the worst conflict zones out there. Um, and he's par part of developing a project now called World Beyond War. And I thought it would be, uh, uh, you know, kind of selfishly uh, really rich to put him in conversation tonight with Reverend Osagifo Uhuru Seiku. Uh, this man has been at the center of, uh, of, the, of the crises and the struggle and the hope that, that's happening, that's exploding around this country today, around racial justice, around policing, and all of the many struggles that come together uh, and connect with those. He's a Freeman Fellow at the Fellowship of Reconciliation, pastor of First the First Baptist Church in Jamaica Plain up in Boston, and he's scholar-in-residence at the King Papers at Stanford. So to get us started, I just want to read a little bit from this book. It's actually the very beginning, and it's something that has a kind of personal uh, meaning for me, and that I hope will, uh, will um, you know, set up a tone for, for the conversation to follow. This is the beginning of chapter one. David writes, it was 1960 and I was 20 years old. I was sitting on a stool at the lunch counter of the ironically named People's Drug Store in Arlington, Virginia, along with 10 African-American classmates from Howard University. The voice I heard was laced with venom and the eyes of the speaker were filled with hatred. He was threatening to thrust his knife its blade just inches away from me through my heart. We were both shaking. Now, when I first read that, it just floored me. Um, the reason is that I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, and I grew up going to that drugstore, that same store. I, I never knew that something like this had happened there. You know, I never knew that this geography of resistance was overlaid uh, on top of the geography of my own childhood, my upbringing, that the place that I was formed in um, had in turn been formed by a struggle like the one he was describing. And what I'd like to see come from this conversation is, is you know, sharing some of those maps, sharing some of those legacies, and connecting them to what's going on now. So I want to start by asking David, when you see these struggles erupting around the country now. What stories are you coming back to? What are you thinking of um, from, from your past and the work that you've done? You know, what's been coming to mind? Well, thank you, Nathan. <clears throat> and it's a pleasure to be on this panel with Reverend Seku. Bless you, dear brother. <clears throat> and thanks, everyone, for coming. <clears throat> I guess uh, when I was just 15 years old, I had a chance to go to Montgomery, Alabama during the Montgomery bus boycott mm -hmm. uh, and met Martin Luther King and met the people uh, of Montgomery who had decided that they'd had enough of segregation. Uh, they were not going to cooperate w with it anymore, and they were not going to ride the segregated buses. And even if they had to uh, walk, get up an hour earlier to walk to work, um, they weren't going to ride those buses. And even when uh, a black church was bombed, they didn't, they didn't give up on their struggle. 
And they, they refused to hate the white people that had done this to them, but said, we're, we're going to continue until we're, uh, we've integrated the buses in Montgomery and we can ride it, our, the buses in dignity. Well, inspired by that experience in Montgomery, Alabama, I decided to go to Howard University, which was a largely African-American university. <clears throat> we spent most of our weekends in jail uh, my sophomore year uh, trying to integrate the uh, restaurants in, in, in Maryland. The state of Virginia had uh, passed a law saying that you could get six months in prison and $500 fines uh, for challenging the segregation law there. Well, for whatever reason, the uh, owner of this people's drugstore uh, decided not to give us any food, uh, but he also uh, wasn't going to give that he also wasn't going to have us arrested. So we sat there uh, on the lunch counter to stools for two days, waiting for something to eat. And it was the most challenging two days of my life. Uh, people spat at us in the face. People put lit cigarettes down our shirts. People uh, punched us in the stomach so hard we would fall on the floor. Mm. The American Nazi party came with their swastikas. Mm. And each time we uh, tried to uh, respond in a nonviolent, loving way. And toward the end of the second day, what uh, Nathan has read to you, a guy came up from behind me and says, if you don't get out of the store in two seconds, I'm going to stab this through your heart. And I had two, two, two seconds to decide, uh, do I really believe in nonviolence, or how else should I try to uh, relate to this guy? But we'd had a lot of practice, and I just looked him in the eyes, and I said, a friend, uh, do what you believe is right, uh, but I'll still try to love you. And uh, amazingly, his, his face that was contorted with hatred, his jaw began to drop, and his hand with the switchblade began to fall, and he left the store. Well, we then did something maybe even more challenging. There were 500 people with rocks uh, threatening violence with us out, to us outside. And we, we had written a statement appealing to the religious and community leaders of Arlington to use their influence to get the eating facilities open to everyone. And then this was the hard part. We said, if nothing changes, we'll be back in a week. And some friendly media people got us out alive. And we went back to Howard and literally shook for six days whether we had the courage to go back and do it again. And on the sixth day, we got a call that the religious and community leaders of Arlington had met and had uh, talked with the, uh, the owners of the drugstores and the uh, eating facilities and had gotten a commitment that uh, eating facilities would be open to everyone within 10 days. So I like to think this was the most important lesson of my life. Uh, when faced with something horrendous, <clears throat> such as segregation of the lunch counters, such as you know, violence, war, injustice. We don't have to just uh, take that uh, lying down or curse the television set or the president or the segregation system. We can 
find some other people that care about that as deeply as we can, as we do, uh, get some training in nonviolence, and just challenge that injustice head on. And in 1960, uh, we, ha we had the feeling the students all over the South were a part of this movement. We were just a small group in Arlington, Virginia that was doing this, but we felt the support and the solidarity of people over the country. And it seems to me like we're at that kind of a moment again, uh, where, uh, where white, often white police are shooting with impunity uh, young black men uh, or killing them. And uh, I have the belief, the deep down belief, that with the tens of thousands of people uh, demonstrating against you know, around this country, uh, that this kind of insanity, this kind of inhumanity of, to our fellow citizens uh, has to stop. And um, I think if we can sustain that resistance and keep it nonviolent, even in the face of the police repression, uh, that we could change this uh, practice of, of police killing uh, unarmed young black folks. Um, you know, in a question of months, not years or decades. Mm -hmm. Reverend Seiki, where do you see us now? What, what has happened in the last few months since August? And where are we now? And where do you see us going? Well, I haven't gotten much sleep in the past <laughs> hundred some odd days. <clears throat> um, I think that, well, just first let me just say thank you. Um, I used to cook smoke at Mary's house. Can I? <laughs> I just thought about that. When I used to, I, I, I can't smoke. We can't smoke at Mary's house anymore. Because <laughs> I used to be able to smoke him. I, I might pull a cigarette out later. But uh, but we used to. I, this is a holy place for me. And these are holy people, who do a holy work. Um, I used to. Uh, dip in here every now and then for coffee and a cigarette um, and watch God's hand at work in this place. And so, uh, you know, anytime we can sit in the shadow of the great Dorothy Day, we ought to, you know, it should be a law that you stand up when you say her name. Mm -hmm. well, what's the, the title of her uh, memoir? Uh, the long loneliness, my God. Because this is a lonely work. I didn't see my dear friend, Brother Matt. I, Matt and I shared a jail cell together a few times. Remember that time, Matt, we were at, uh, uh, at the UN and they refused to arrest clergy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they refused to arrest us, right? We did everything we could to get arrested, and they refused to arrest us. I walked up to the captain of the New York, uh, NYPD, and I said, the first time in the history of New York City, black man trying to get arrested in Kane. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't think that was funny. <laughs> then I see my sister Heather back there. Heather's with Pico. She does the, uh, the digital work. We were tear gassed together uh, and endured a, a, a war zone. It's good to see you, dear sister, and our friends from the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Our, the captain of our ship, uh, Reverend Christian, is here, and Linda and Gretchen, who's uh, spent quite a bit of time with us down in, uh, in Ferguson. And then uh, Brother Daryl Pickney, a brilliant writer, 
who uh, somehow I managed to get in the back of the FOR car while there were bullets flying over our heads and um, buildings burning in front of us. It was a quite harrowing night, but we are still here. Dear brother, I, I don't know where we are. I mean, I just, just to, to be honest, you know, I, mean, I could give you some abstract philosophical uh, critique of the way in which hegemony's knees are shaking and that poor people out of a sub subterranean context have risen and shaken the very foundation of the empire. That could be a kind of abstract philosophical assessment of it. But I don't know, man. All I know is that these young folks won't bow down. <laughs> Mm. I mean, it's, I was saying earlier, they have this chant they do. Uh, um, we're young, we're strong, we're marching all night long. Now they start doing the chant about 2.30. <laughs> and I'm like, we've been out here all night long. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you, you know, um, but they won't bow down. And, and, then, and, and it's a different moment. You know, Tef Poe, great rapper off the, uh, from uh, Ferguson, often says that, uh, you know, this ain't your mama's civil rights movement. So, and this particular movement pushes all the respectability politics bu buttons. It's queer, it's woman-led, it's young, it is profane, nonetheless holy. Right, it's a it's a different moment. It, it doesn't look like that, you know. So there's a, like there's there's not be interesting some exchange about this with, bro with brother David, is that you know like uh, you know they curse, they say fuck the police, All right? And people, you know, a lot of folks in the older generation is like, well, you know, that's not the language is violent. That's violent language. What do we do? I mean, one of the, one of the phenomena that is so brilliant about this movement is. Here is a generation, you know, three generations away from the civil rights movement. No connection with the black church. They can't stand preachers. <laughs> no connection to the historic black church. Limited access to the tradition of the civil rights movement. Decrepit schoolings. Civil society crumbling around them. And they're always under attack. And yet they have maintained the second longest protest movement in modern history. They are 120 some days in, second only to the Montgomery bus boycott with nothing made a way out of no way, right? And so in terms of kind of us having some general assessment of where we are, I just know they won't stop. And I gotta figure out how I'm gonna get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this is, this is a, you know, when I first, when you first sent me the manuscript of this book, the first thing I thought was, well, that's a pretty long book, right? So when you talk about, when you talk about um, keeping it up and sustaining the movement, you know, you've been a sustaining movement for a long time. What, is, what does sustaining mean in a movement for you? What does that take? <clears throat> um, sustaining, uh, the, the word for uh, nonviolence, in uh, Portuguese is relentless persistence. <clears throat> and I think uh, sustaining meaning uh, we don't give up after the first day, week, month, 
year, <laughs> five years. <decade>. Years. <laughs> Lord have mercy. I, I, want, <laughs> I want you to get some sleep, <laughs> and I do need sleep yeah, yeah. <laughs> to uh, to to st stay at the struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think if we look at any of the movements in history, uh, whether it was uh, uh, you know, women's suffrage, when it whether it was uh, voting rights, whether it was uh, labor rights, the 40-hour week, uh, the anti-Vietnam War movement, um, all of these, it's, it's taken sustained struggle. Mm -hmm. And we don't give up just because the police you know, attack us or arrest us. Um, and we've discovered in California, where I'm from now, um, that when a whole bunch of us are thrown in jail, mm -hmm. we use that as an opportunity to uh, strengthen our community, mm -hmm. uh, strengthen our uh, understanding. It's an opportunity to strategize and share our life stories and, mm -hmm. and uh, help us nurture that sense of spirit that can um, keep us going for the long haul. Mm -hmm. So actually, the, uh, the, very often in civil disobedience kind of protests in California now, they don't keep us in jail a long time because mm -hmm. uh, it just means we will strengthen our movement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, so I think to, for, to, for sustained struggle for me, uh, one, we need a vision of where we want to go. Mm -hmm. uh, second, we need uh, some sense of community. Mm -hmm. uh, we need some good strategy, mm -hmm. thinking about how we're going to get from here to there. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we have the, need the commitment mm -hmm. uh, that we're not going to give up, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of what it takes. Mm -hmm. but, but a commitment from my perspective, mm -hmm. of maintaining a nonviolent mm -hmm. action, because I have seen, for instance, in Oakland, mm -hmm. uh, in the Occupy movement, where we had <clears throat> a, really a mass movement mm -hmm. uh, in the early days of Occupy. Uh, and after people smashed some windows, mm -hmm. uh, the people with children, young children, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, a lot of older people, uh, people that were just new to the movement, mm -hmm. they didn't keep coming. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to, if we're going to be um, successful, I think mm -hmm. we, it, this has to be a mass movement. Mm -hmm. You know, I, the, the couple of things. You know, one of the one of the challenges that we've all, we also faced in Ferguson, uh, and, and and having lived and organized in New York for ten years, somewhat. You know, I mean, at one level, is we do these vanity arrests. You know. <laughs> Well, we kind of work, all right, Mr. Police, man, we're going to be here at 3.30. We're going to sit down in the street. Y'all get us and take us off. With, you know, and those go over pretty well. Uh, I think the reason why they didn't want to do the clergy arrest at, uh, when we were at the UN is because we had people with us in uh, Guantanamo outfits, right, with the names. And then you got clergy in robes. It was a bad, it was, the, that, that's a little more militant. Because one of the romantic narratives that we give around the civil rights movement, and you were there so you can rescue me if I'm wrong, is that, that there was not violence, right? That the police were vicious in their violence and that there were people who broke nonviolent discipline. 
and I think also, so what we've given and oftentimes was translated out of the peace movement and out of uh, kind of bourgeois civil rights narrative is this kind of, this, you know, nice people marching, nice people and dress well, speaking well, and that, you know what I'm saying? And so one of the challenges is that, is, is translating to a generation, right? So I've done a lot of, I did quite a few, quite a few nonviolent civil disobedience training, Gretchen and I, uh, at, uh, in, um, in Ferguson, is that when we talked about militant nonviolent civil disobedience, not <clears throat> passive, but militant. Now, one of the challenges we face is that it turned some of the white clergy off, and they're mostly their members. They were like, it was too aggressive, you know, uh, you know, Alan uh, yelling on the microphone scared a lot of white folks. Uh, uh, you know, they're this big old six foot tall black man. You know, he's scary anyway. And then he hollering loud. <laughs> you know, it just goes, it scared, you know, white clergy saying we lost some space. And we had quite a bit of pushback on the kind of militant approach, where it's a direct confrontation with the state to create the moral drama. That particular brand of nonviolence is more appealing to a younger generation. Is more impelling. Mm -hmm. And then, not that you're saying this, I want to caution against white anxiety being a guiding force for social movements in the US. All right. Because part of the challenge that we, uh, we are facing, right, in terms of that, you know, like 61% of white folk in, uh, in St. Louis County think Michael Brown got what he deserved. Uh, 61%. We just need to shave off 10%. That'll get, we maybe get a decent piece of legislation. I'm, I'm thinking advocacy now. Like we might be able to get a decent piece of legislation. If we can save that off about 10%, right? And so clergy help play a role in giving space that it looks okay. Like, well, if the clergy into it, it might be all right. Because usually the clergy are so awful on these questions, right? But when white anxiety becomes the guiding force for us in terms of wanting to build a bass movement, I'm saying as a parent, I don't want my kids out there if you're tearing up shit to either. But something more militant, more aggressive, right, is young, it's black, it's rageful, right, pulling, pushing all the triggers in the culture. I'm talking about kids tatted up. You know, kid met with the president named uh, T-Double uh, a few days ago. T-Double got, got a... Uh, Tear tattoo, that's for somebody who's been slain. Tattoos on his face. President had to meet with him. Because they can't control these young people. They met with everybody they possibly could. They met with Sharpton. They met with all the preachers. They met with the NAACP. And everybody had to say the same thing. Call me, I had to tell them the same thing. I don't control them. <clears throat> I don't control these young people. And so I had to meet with them, but they don't look like what is normative to us. And so what is the balance between trying to build a broad movement while not allowing white anxiety to guide, uh, to guide us in our work? Well, um, I, I would agree. We don't allow white anxiety to guide us mm -hmm. in, our work, in, our, in our work. Um, Daniel Leo Dolce, who some of you uh, perhaps remember, was a Gandhian leader of Sicily mm. um, and was c confronting the, the mafia. Mm. <clears throat> he came to a uh, meeting in Philadelphia a few years ago, or a number of years ago, 
and declared to this bunch of uh, nonviolent kind of folks. Mm -hmm. He says, I no longer believe in nonviolence. Mm. You know, and, and this gasp came, you know, mm -hmm. came over the crowd. And he says, but I do need, believe in nonviolent action. I believe in nonviolent revolution. Mm. <clears throat> and I think nonviolence as a passive, uh, accept the status quo, <laughs> uh, be nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not enough. Mm -hmm. So we're agreed there. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe, if you look, which I'm sure you have, the voting rights mm -hmm. uh, movement. Mm -hmm. uh, as you probably remember, King. No, I don't remember. I read about it. Read about it. <laughs> <laughs> you remember. As, you know when you read it, uh, but he he King was on the back on the way back from um, from accepting the Nobel Peace Prize, right. came to Washington D.C., stopped to see the president, and he still had an open door at that mm -hmm, time mm -hmm. because he hadn't said I'm not only against racism, I'm against militarism mm -hmm. and economic injustice, mm -hmm. uh, and he said, Mr. President, we need a voting rights bill, and the president said. It would never get through Congress. You know, we've just got the uh, Civil Rights Bill. Mm -hmm. Wait a few years and we'll, you know, we'll try. Mm -hmm. King didn't waste any more time in Washington. Mm -hmm. Went south, and with SNCC and you know many mm -hmm. others, mm -hmm. uh, organized thousands of black people mm -hmm. just going to the uh, to the courthouses to register mm -hmm. to vote. Mm -hmm. The the police, as you remember, <laughs> Bull Connor and, mm -hmm. and the others, uh, you know, beat them with their batons mm -hmm. and uh, you know, brought the police dogs. Mm -hmm. and, and when the American people, and I don't think that was just the white you know, middle class folks, mm -hmm. I think the whole broad base of the American people saw that the intense violence mm -hmm. of the system mm -hmm. against people wanting to do as, something as American as, mm -hmm. as voting. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a voting rights bill within a few months. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think that if, if those folks had brought along, uh, you know, their own billy clubs mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, or rocks or uh, a multi of cocktails or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, I think there would have been a massive fight. Mm -hmm. The people would have been outgunned mm -hmm. uh, by the police. And I don't think we would have gotten a voting rights bill Mm -hmm. For a long time, the conscience of the nation was awoken, mm -hmm. and that to me is is more powerful mm -hmm. than uh, whatever uh, angry epithets or violence mm -hmm. that we might uh, be able to uh, mobilize. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's not so much you know nonviolence is active nonviolence mm -hmm. is morally superior. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's more effective. Mm. Well, you know, one of the, one of the, I mean, we have to think in Ferguson, they've been nonviolent 100 and, I think, is it 20 days now? Is it, we're at 120 now? Days in Ferguson, I think? Something like that. We're at 100, but uh, we've only had violence twice. Uh, um, and one of the, uh, and the first time was early on, and much of the violence is, again, these are young folks who hadn't had no training, mm -hmm. but right. the only reason we paying attention. 
<clears throat> so I never want to lose sight of that. Right? So they never been a Highlander, but they done made America bow. <laughs> right? So I, want, so I don't want to lose track of that. And, one of the, and, and then as an African-American, quite honestly, you know, context similar to the civil rights movement, you know, when I first found out about Mike Brown, I was like, oh, they killed another one? Yeah. It's normative. Yeah. Then, you know, they tow up something for about two, three days, about two days. I said, they settle down. Right. Then they wouldn't stop. <laughs> I was like, well, I better get to St. Louis because. Right. So but part of the reality is that the only reason the world is paying attention is the violence. It's the only reason. Right. All the vast majority of news stories about it. And, you know, and then at, so that, that was at the butchers in, uh, in uh, August about the 11th or the 12th, several day, you know, several hundred days of, uh, of 100 some odd days of nonviolent protests, a peak at Octo in October, and then the violence that broke out after the killing of Michael Brown, in which the people were goaded, right? They were goaded. He read that thing for 30 minutes before he announced that there was a non-indictment. He mocked them. They did it at 9 p.m. when they know it's going to be hot. Right. We asked for 48 hours notice. They didn't even tell the family. The mother found out the same time. I actually knew an hour before she did. Like they goaded the people. And then you put military equipment out there and then they have this tendency. They bang their batons on the ground. After everybody in the nation has betrayed these young people. Church, mosque, temple, synagogue, civil rights organizations, civic society, school system, popular cultures betrayed them. Then you bring out tanks. I used to tell the police all the time. I said, you know, if y'all go home, they'll go home. <laughs> I just need, if y'all go home, I can get some sleep tonight. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? So, so in that context. So it's not that in Ferguson people have been responding. The people have been largely and surprisingly nonviolent uh, in the midst of the provocation without having the connection and the history and that kind of thing or whatever. And that, you know, we've trained some of the, or some of the toughest. Uh, uh, we did a training for the Lost Voices. The cat, walk, bud, walk up to me afterwards. They went and did a protest at uh, the game, Rams game. And uh, he walked up to me, he said, Rev, I'm sorry. I said, what, what, what's wrong, dear brother? He said, why you ain't tell me they was gonna be spitting? <laughs> I said, well, brother, he was only with me for two hours. You know, it takes about a year for this to get in you. So I said, I'll spit on you at the next trainer. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, Rev, I think I'm going to do jail support. <laughs> <laughs> right, but this is a victory. Right, saying that I can't hold nonviolent discipline. I believe this movement is a nonviolent movement. So why don't I do jail support instead of being in the street? So anyway, I... There's a there's still this 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 tension I'm feeling internally around certain around nonviolent discipline. Not that I right, you know, I don't think we can win. And that's what I tell the young people on the street all the time. Look we, we can't win with what? With guns. All right. They got too many. 
Yeah. Like now, if we were in, you know, if we were, if we were Fidel Castro, nineteen fifty nine, where we can win the sympathy of the people, if we're the Zapatistas, right? If we're the Sandinistas, look how that turned out. But if, you know, if we're the Sandinistas, that's a different conversation contextually, right? Because there is something mm-hmm. that I believe France Fanon has to say about notions of revolutionary violence. I'm not willing to engage it, but I understand the conclusion. And I think if nonviolent movements are unwilling to not have that conversation about what, what are the ways in which the historically othered engage in forms of resistance, which for many of them violence is an option, it's a dishonest conversation. You know, so I don't want to foreclose on the possibility, mm-hmm. well, let's just kind of, okay, you know, what? When we're talking to gang members in Ferguson, right? You know, they was like, you know, I'm ready to die. Well, I'm not. <laughs> now I got to preach in the morning. You know, like, 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 like there, there is a sensibility where given the level, also what we didn't have in the 1960s that we have now is a level of access to militarized weaponry, both among police and civilians. Yeah. So it's a different cultural moment. So I'm not discounting an argument around nonviolence. I believe in it at bare minimum tactically and principally it seems like it makes pretty good sense yeah. too, right? Mm-hmm. Is that... Uh, is that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tease out something, not just bringing Bill of Clubs and, um, to answer Billy Clubs. I'm trying to tease out what, are the, what is the, the, the container of rage vis-a-vis a more militant form of nonviolence. So is it the locking of arms that Rutgers does? Is it shutting down highways, right? Is it, you know... Uh, Thanksgiving weekend uh, uh, sales down 11%. The economy's bounced back. That's because people were protesting all over the country, disrupting businesses and and confronting citizens because we all guilty. Every last one of us pays taxes into a morally bankrupt system. And so we all should be inconvenienced, right? But I'm trying to I'm, I guess I'm trying to get from you, Brother David, because uh, I need some help. <laughs> I'm trying to get from you, what are the tactics? Like, you know, I know you laid out in front of train tracks and all that kind of crazy stuff. So tell me, I, I need some tactical help, dear brother. I'm sorry, I'm working here in the Navy. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, well, I... One thing you said, it was the violence that got the attention. Yeah. Uh, I would say what's getting the attention right now mm-hmm. is the uh, demonstrations in New York and all across this country. Mm. It, it's the masses of people saying we're not going to accept this. Mm-hmm. The people of Ferguson are not alone. Mm. And uh, I think people are taking note of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, that... that that's that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a second, I think that um, <clears throat> what was I going to say? I, well, in terms of tactics, I agree. Militant nonviolence is what's called for here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, during the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. uh, we were blockading trains carrying bombs to kill people in, in central in, in Vietnam. With your body? With our bodies. My Lord. Um, and, and we were blo- blo- blocking ships during the Vietnam War and blocking uh, trains carrying bombs to ships during the, during the Central America Wars. Now, those are federal charges. Hmm? Are those federal charges? Well, uh, they threatened us with 20 years in prison. 
or blocking the ships. Um, but when we looked up the crate at the crates of napalm and mm. anti-personnel bombs, and then we saw the ship that was going to take them to Vietnam, uh, we said, you know, if these bombs reach their destination, mm. it's going to be worse than 20 years in prison. Mm. Um, luckily, they didn't put us in, in prison for 20 years. But in uh, the first ship that we uh, blocked uh, was called the USS Nitro, uh, which was taking bombs and munitions to Vietnam. As we were paddling our canoes to try to stay right in front of the ship, uh, and they lifted anchor, uh, seven, we looked up on the, on the bow of the ship, seven of the sailors jumped ship and began swimming toward our blockade. Mm. And um, to, to join us <laughs> in blocking that ship. Uh, they, no. were, they were picked up by the Navy, uh, put back in the, in, the, in the brig of the ship. Mm -hmm. uh, but word about what they, went, what they did not only went all across the country, it went to the American military mm. all around the world. Mm. They told us later that when their ship went through the Panama Canal, uh, the other Navy ships had all heard uh, about the resistance on the USS Nitro and gave them the fist of solidarity. Mm. And uh, about that time, or soon after, uh, the resistance within the U.S. military to carrying out immoral, illegal orders of burning villages mm -hmm. uh, began to really increase very significantly. Mm. Um, so I like to believe, if you've, I'm sure you've seen Sir No Sir. Yes. A major reason that war stopped, mm -hmm. ended, was the American soldiers weren't mm -hmm. willing to fight it anymore. <clears throat> so I believe... Our courage gave these seven sailors courage to do what they believed was right. And those seven sailors gave courage to uh, thousands of other soldiers mm. to listen to what their own heart and conscience was saying about this war. <clears throat> uh, so that's the kind of thing I think we can do. Uh, Brian Wilson, my fr Vietnam vet friend, uh, was run over by a train carrying bombs to a ship going to Vietnam, lost his legs. Mm. His uh, big hole in his head, mm. uh, many, many bones broken. The Navy, we know, uh, the orders from Washington came not to stop that train. Mm. And their goal was to t say, we, we have a war to fight. <laughs> you guys go home. Mm -hmm. But instead of going home, uh, we blocked every train for two and a half years mm. that was carrying bombs and munitions. Mm. Uh, and uh, later, in uh, traveling around the world, we heard that people all over the world were inspired, that there were people in the United States that cared enough about the suffering and pain they were, they were feeling, mm -hmm. that they were willing to risk their lives to try to stop it. Mm -hmm. you know, so I the, the Navy's action <laughs> of running us through, we didn't know if we could keep blocking trains for a week mm -hmm. when we started. Mm -hmm. uh, but somehow, um, that that really horrendous, stupid action of, of the of the military uh, somehow touched thousands of people. And said we mm -hmm. want to be a, a part of this thing. Yeah, it, um, it it makes there's there's a so brother David. I wonder if the nation still has a conscience. 
Well, I'm not sure about the nation, but I think a lot of people do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And because I'm, 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 America may have gone from uh, ado- uh, adolescence to corruption without ever meeting maturity. And, and, and so I'm not terribly hopeful about the conscience of the nation, right? Individuals, yes, but they are so recalcitrant. I mean, uh, that the, the right wing has such a stronghold on the nation. And liberals are so cowardly now. <laughs> Just, I agree. <laughs> just so, so cowardly. I mean, just spineless. And, and you know, a fractured, a fractured, weak, depressed, demoralized American left, if there is such a thing, uh, combined with, you know, uh, you know, the ha- habit-forming practice of bowing to the powers that religious leaders are prone to. all of which have served as the conscience of the nation. But I am suspicious of the claim. Of the claim. Of the claim that we can get enough white folks in the street willing to put their lives on the line for angry black kids, for angry black children. Respectable black people, yeah. I mean, you can't talk to the president like that. He's an undergraduate from Columbia, a degree from Harvard, and taught at University of Chicago, and he's, he speaks well. Right? You can't talk to him like that. But just the, the bane of the nation. I'm, right. I, so I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if the possibilities of, an, an, uh, of a broad-based coalition. Now, and, and I'll say this and I'll shut up, is that it's not that this broad-based coalition, I'm, not, I'm actually not too worried about it because there's only been a prophetic few who have will, been willing to seize public imagination and bend public policy to their will that have ever changed anything in this country. Only a few. So I'm not. But I'm, I'm wondering... Given the beleaguered nature of the aforementioned forces that I mentioned, if the conscience of the nation can be like, is 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 it just is the empire just on fire? You know, I'm I'm you know now and and I'm now I'm raising the question, right? While I'm saying to it, it needs to make a choice and being in the streets, doing organizing, trying to support young people, preaching about hope and possibility, right? But I figured since I was at the Catholic Worker, I could tell the truth. <laughs> that I got some questions about the redeemability of the nation. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, <clears throat> redeemability of the nation, uh, I think, is different than redeemability of the empire. Mm. And I was talking with David McReynolds this afternoon. Where, where is In the back. <laughs> <laughs> Where is the, the man, man that we voted for uh, for president? Where is, I times. can't see him. Where is he? Right behind the post from where you are. <laughs> I see you, dear brother. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. But um, David was saying the American Empire is already dead. Mm. That uh, you know started even with the Korean War, we couldn't win it. Mm. Vietnam, we lost. Uh, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq mm -hmm. uh, have been total disasters. Mm -hmm. And the nation's taking an ass whooping in Ferguson, too, now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was in the Soviet Union when the, uh, during the Freedom Rides mm. in 1961. Uh, so on the front pages of the you know, Soviet press was American, you know, the Greyhound buses on fire with Freedom Riders in it. Mm. And you know, people were saying, well, "Why do you treat your people like that?" Mm -hmm. I mean, you well, know, you, you know, I think it's going to be the same now again. When, why? Why are your police shooting your unarmed people? Mm. One of the funniest things ever. I think it was Iran, uh, Egypt, and maybe Syria sent uh, communiques to the U.S. telling them <laughs> uh, that they should uh, not suppress <laughs> uh, nonviolent protests. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was sweet. <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, if you look at the tens of thousands of people that are demonstrating all across this country, mm -hmm. uh, they're marching across the Brooklyn Bridge. Or mm -hmm. I, I hear, I've heard that 35,000 people have signed up on Facebook mm -hmm. to be a part of the demonstration at Union Square. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, isn't that a bunch of people that uh, were doing nothing, mm. you know, several months ago? Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I am totally, and I, and I want, let me just say, I appreciate you making that distinction between the nation and the empire. And we could have a philosophical argument about the very nature of the nation state as an antiquated yeah. formation. No, by the nation, I mean the people. Uh, yeah, yeah, the people. So, so, I, so, so, so in terms of the people, I definitely have hope in. Yeah. No, well, I, I've, I mean, that's our hope. Yeah. And I mean, to me, the mo a hopeful thing looking at the whole international scene is that people all over the world have, have discovered the power of nonviolent action. Oh, no, of course. And dictatorship after dictatorship has mm. been overthrown mm. uh, by people realizing that if they withdraw their cooperation mm -hmm. uh, from that illegal, immoral, yeah. <laughs> unconstitutional authority, mm -hmm. uh, the power of that dictator, oh, the yeah, government yeah, no. won't listen to people, uh, falls. Yeah, I mean, I so think that's that's amazing. Fifty years ago, uh, I, I mean, that was not the case. What did you do with '68? Hmm? 1968. I mean, there's quite a bit of movement in '68, yeah. right? Well, I'm not just saying I'm not just saying there was no movement, mm -hmm. but I I think on a global scale, uh, people discovering the power of, of active mm. nonviolent resistance is is very encouraging. And you perhaps know the book by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan. Oh, the one. Why civil resistance yeah, works. works. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they discovered that they studied 323 violent and nonviolent movements mm -hmm. all over the world in the last 110 years, mm -hmm. and the nonviolent movements were twice as likely to be successful. Mm -hmm. And part of that was because they could be broad-based mm -hmm. and not just the relatively young men mm -hmm. you know, trained in warfare, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera. And to not um, revert to dictatorship or mm -hmm. more civil war. Well, you know, I, I, I read the text, and James Lawson is prone to quote it to me. <laughs> um, uh, I love him, but um, let's just say we we have interesting dialogues. Good. <laughs> Good. 
is um the in that because you you talked about visioner early on. Yeah. I want to question their notion of success. If it is the creation of an equilibrium, a negative peace, a status quo in which people don't have access to health care, decent a living wage, uh, uh, adequate schooling, equal proce- due process under the law, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to interrogate that very notion of success. And in most, and in most of what we've seen in post-liberation movements, you know, the great Sekou Toure, my revolutionary namesake, says that the problem with the African Revolution is not the revolution, it's what we set up afterwards. And so when we look at South Africa, model constitution, mm-hmm. <laughs> whites still control the majority of the land. And that's what apartheid is. 13% of the people get uh, 18, 87% of the land, and 87% of the people get 13% of the land. If that is a model for, I mean, high levels of poverty, high levels of economic deprivation, right? You know, HIV numbers exploding, high level of uh, 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 public health issues. Model constitution, <laughs> right? Right. This is something about the founding of na- the founders of nations. They show can put pretty words on paper. Right, but in turn, and so the question, I want to interrogate the the notion of what that success is, and then because one of the ways in which and and and, and I, so I think PM Press published a book by an anarchist I can't think of the name of came out about two years ago critiquing nonviolence because in the sense of what does and again you know I believe in nonviolence right. deeply tactically pretty sure principally. Active nonviolence. Active nonviolence. Yeah, right. Militant nonviolence. I believe in it deeply, right? You know, uh, uh, plus I can't fight. Um, <laughs> is that right? Is that uh, my, my, I'm, 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 I want to interrogate this notion of what success looks like because one of the ways in which people have made an argument against nonviolence is that if you look at the civil rights movement, these are primarily bourgeois reforms. Access to franchisement, access to public public accommodations, right, mm-hmm. right. These are and 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 that given that America is this odd creation in which white men never had to fight for basic fran- franchisement right. post you know early on in the founding of the nation, right, and that and be, given the level given the level of white supremacy and patriarchy in the country that it attempted to suppress historically other. Mm. person's access to essentially bourgeois reform and bourgeois prices. I mean, voting is a big deal, but it kind of is not mm-hmm. if you can't eat. <laughs> right. So in, 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 you know what I'm saying? So given the fact that we're talking about access to a, to a reformist project in and of itself, is that success? Now, I'm saying I honor the fact that we sit here in a relatively integrated um, setting without the fear of arbitrary violence by virtue of the fact that this gathering is not illegal. So I'm not saying that that is not an important fact, Mm -hmm. but I I wanna interrogate what nonviolent success looks like if it's not connected to a large division, which may have to make some ideological claims. Because one of the critiques of nonviolence, like when you look at Sharp's work, right, is that anybody can use it, because it has no ideological claims to it. And so, does that vision that you're talking about include making some ideological claims? Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and I, I believe uh, that uh, overthrowing uh, dictators mm-hmm. yeah, nonviolently is only the first step. 
Mm. I mean, I think even Gandhi in India, uh, they threw out the British, mm -hmm. uh, but they didn't really finish that revolution. Mm. Um, and I think Martin Luther King, when he organized the Poor People's Campaign mm -hmm. at the end of his life, was pointing in the direction of really much more revolutionary change mm -hmm. in this country, mm -hmm. um, in which every person would mm -hmm. have a right to really a full and, and decent life, mm -hmm. not just the right to vote mm -hmm. uh, or the right to ride on the bus, mm -hmm. et cetera. And that's part of the reason he was killed. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you know. <laughs> um, so uh, we need to continue that, that mm -hmm. revolution that, that mm -hmm. King envisioned. Mm -hmm. And he, he was saying, we're going to bring whatever thousand, however many people to Washington, D.C., and shut down Washington business yes, as usual yes, yes. until we make this kind of transformation of our society. And um, I think that's what we still have to do. And I see that in the making uh, today when you see these demonstrations all across the country in support of the people in Ferguson. And I think the other question I would ask in the terms of nonviolence, violence, mm -hmm. I think that the police and the military and the powers that be like violence, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and in the 60s, they often instigated it. Mm -hmm. they, had, uh, they had people that would infiltrate and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got them now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. But, uh, so why pick the place that they are the strongest? Mm -hmm. You know, in, in terms of how we're gonna do the struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think they really know how to deal with nonviolent, sustained, courageous, militant, mm -hmm. uh, nonviolent struggle. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the direction we've got to go. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. I just hope we can maybe thank them for, for this conversation so far and uh, start to open it up because, you know, otherwise the, the tension's emerging. bit too much for me to handle. Okay, so somewhere along the line, this conversation became a sort of subtle debate, but a good one. And not surprisingly, there are differences among even the most well-studied and practiced proponents of nonviolence, particularly when there is a difference in age among those folks. But let's jump ahead to their concluding remarks, where I think it becomes clear that the differences are just a matter of perspective. And it's clear both of these individuals have unique and valuable perspectives one stemming from decades of activism and the other from being in the midst of a burgeoning new movement. Here's David to begin. Thank you. It's been an honor to be a part of this, this discussion with you. I would just say <clears throat> I'd like to reiterate what I said early on in, my, in this conversation, that my belief is if, if thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people continue on a sustained basis, Yes. Our militant, nonviolent struggle, uh, we will no longer be silent mm. when young African Americans are getting killed mm. and the, the police are, uh, don't have to pay any consequences. Mm -hmm. We can change that. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's really a call for all of us. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, in the churches, in the synagogues, in the colleges and universities, women's groups senior groups, <laughs> mm -hmm. children, to get out there and say, we're not going to take it anymore. Mm -hmm. 
and we're not going to allow it to happen to our brothers and, and sisters in Ferguson or anywhere else. Um, I think we're at that kind of a moment like we were uh, in, on voting rights, on uh, interstate transportation, on in the sit-ins and lunch counters, where we could make that change. It's not going to be the final transformation, mm -hmm. but I think if we can make that change, it's going to give people a real sense of power, mm -hmm. and uh, we we can help uh, make history, and uh, then we can go on to the next phase of the movement. If I could just make one request, <laughs> my request of you all in this room is that when this because this protest doesn't look like the way you're used to it looking, I ask you to look deeper. I ask you to look deeper. Yes, it's profane and it's angry because we have betrayed our children. And so rather than beginning with the con beginning a sentence or a conversation, but if they did it this way, take seriously the way they are doing it. Just take them seriously, take their humanity seriously. I was born again on the streets of Ferguson. I got saved, as we would say in evangelical parlance, by some kids with gold teeth and tattoos and sagging pants. And so I'm asking you to look at their humanity. And so when the media starts that they're violent and whatever, remind them that they've been nonviolent for the vast majority of their protest, even after America betrayed them on every occasion. I ask that you keep track of their humanity and they're just finding their way. They're just trying to make sense of it all. And then my other ask is that you put your body in the way. In the way. Now let's be clear in this moment, whiteness will not save you. They shot a white woman with a collar on. So they will shoot you. But you put your body in the way for them because these are your children too. And right, and when you feel like you're losing your way and you don't understand what it is, I want you to think about your baby, yours, laying in the street for four and a half hours. You looking at your baby, you can't touch your baby that's laying in the street. They got police dogs around your baby keeping you from getting to your baby who you brought into the world, laying in the street, bleeding out. They won't let paramedics get to your baby. And then you understand why these folks are so angry. And we should be celebrating the fact that there's not a riot every 28 hours in America. These people called black have been so disciplined. When America betrays them, they still refuse to shed her blood. We should be celebrating them and lifting them up. And the way you do that is the next time they shoot one down here, you show up. You don't say a word. You just show up. Because these are your children, too. That is my ask of you on the behalf of the people of Ferguson. Amen.
That's all for this episode of We Are Many. I'm Brian Farrell, editor at wagingnonviolence.org, and I'd like to thank today's guests, David Hartso, Osajifo Ohuru Seku, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the New York Catholic Worker, my colleague Nathan Schneider, sound engineer David Tadashor, and John Vanderslice, whose music was played during this episode. Happy holidays, and we'll be back in the new year.